Today we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, just as a heads up, I've been uh, fighting my voice for the past few days, so... Um, I brought my tea with me, so if I, if I stop for a sip, um, don't let that distract you from God's word this morning. Well, you may have heard the phrase said, or you may have said the phrase yourself, maybe even this week, we are living in uncertain times. Now, I'm 32 years old. Um, there are many in this room who have been around much longer than I have, but I've heard phrases thrown around like this my entire life. I was in Fifth grade, when 9-11 occurred, um, certainly people were asking these big questions then, like, what's going on? Everything's so uncertain. And even in the past five years, with the coronavirus pandemic, with economic uncertainty coming out of that, and now these escalating events in the Middle East, those who are believers, I think, can, can rightly ask this question, what is going on? Is Jesus returning? Is this, is this pointing us towards something? It seems like the world is going crazy. And as much as we may ask questions like this today, it seems like the Thessalonian church was asking this question as well thousands of years prior to us. Last week, Evan covered the end of chapter four, where this church was clearly having questions about their loved ones who had passed, who had been buried, what happens to them? And chapter five turns to this question of the day of the Lord. Paul says that they ought to know that Christ is coming back, but they have questions. They have questions like, when? When is this happening? What are are the signs that will point to this and how can we prepare ourselves? And Paul starts the passage like this. He tells them, Concerning the times and the seasons, you don't need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
This is reminiscent of Mark chapter 13 where the disciples ask Jesus a pretty similar question. And his response is this. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus makes the same point that Paul is making here. You don't know the time or the season. And notice, Paul is making the assumption that you guys already know this. You're aware of this. I've told you already, you ought to know. But let me remind you again, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, a thief is not typically something that's expected. The thief purposely comes at an unexpected time. I'm sure there's people in this room who have dealt with either you know, something stolen from your house or from your car. Like, like a thief is not something that anyone expects. It will not be obvious. It will not be well anticipated. And that brings us to Paul's next thought here in verse 3. Where he says this. He says, while people are saying there's peace, there's security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the conversation here starts to shift a bit. His main focus shifts from believers to the surprise that the coming of Jesus will be for those who do not believe. His warning is for those who are so focused on getting by, on having peace, on building security in this world, that they forget about the coming of Christ. If you read through the commentaries, you'll see that there are many, both biblical and historical scholars, who note in this passage that this idea of peace and safety was almost a slogan of the Roman Empire at the time. The idea was that if you kind of fully submit to the governing authorities, if you, if you give up all your rights and your money behind it, then you would be promised peace and safety. So Paul is likely calling out those who are saying, we have peace and security. The government gives us this. We've given it all to them, so we're, we're promised peace and security. He's, he's calling these people out because they place their hope in the governing authorities. And this could certainly go for the, the non-believers at the time, the, the pagans who were trusting in the government, but I can almost say with certainty that this was creeping into the church as it creeps into the church today. So while today there are certainly those who place their hope of peace and security in the governing authorities, I, I think more so our tendency is to place our hope in self in the life we create, in the bank account we've had, in security cameras we might set up to keep out literal thieves, or the career path we've laid out. We even map out our kids' future 
We stress about what school is best, what, what friends they should have or shouldn't have, what, what sports they play, how that will kind of be their track into college or, or whatever way we map this out. We ingrain a sense of self-made peace and security in the next generation. Do this, 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 don't do this, this, and this, and set yourself up well. And what so often happens, whether, whether Christian or not, is that when these things don't go according to plan, as they always do, our world crumbles. While we are saying there is peace, there is security, sudden destruction will come. Paul's warning is that for those who trust in security and peace, this destruction will come and they will not be able to escape it. And he uses this analogy of a pregnant woman going into labor. If it's coming, it's coming. You don't have time to finish your dinner. You don't have time to finish your crossword puzzle. You, you grab the bag by the door and you go because that baby's coming and you're, you're not able to escape it at that point. And in the same way that a pregnant woman knows that baby's coming at some point, she also does not know the day or the hour. She has a due date. She might have an idea. There might be markers. Okay, we're getting closer but she still cannot pinpoint the day or the hour, so she stays ready and waiting. After this, Paul kind of moves from those who are worldly, who trust in peace and security, and as he often does, he, he, he sets, this is how we ought not to think, and he moves into how we ought to think to those who trust in Christ. Let's look at verses four and five together. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Paul says, you are not in darkness, but you are of the light. There's a clear contrast here between being in darkness, being in light, between night and day. And although we still do not know the day or the hour, we who are in the light will not be surprised by the thief. We'll be anticipating it. We'll be knowing it's coming. This is the first of three metaphors that he uses. And I think this first metaphor of, of light and darkness is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in John eight twelve. It says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this leads us into the next comparison that Paul sets up. This is verses six and seven. He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So Paul goes on to contrast those who are asleep against those who are awake. And the idea of sleep brings with it this assumption of being unprepared. When you're asleep at night, like that's, that's literally your most vulnerable state. You are unconscious. You have no idea what's going on around you. You're asleep. You're unaware. 
Um, when I was in college, I lived at the BSM house on campus, um, and across the hall from me, um, I had two, two roommates over there in another room. Um, one was Joe Blanderbergo. Many of you might know Joe and Elizabeth. Um, they're full-time missionaries in the Philippines now. Um, and the other was Matt Jones, who many of you know, been around Ogletown for a long time. And Matt was and still is a serial sleepwalker. Um, if you want to give Joe a call sometime, he'll tell you all the stories. He can tell them better than I can. Um, but more often than not, Matt would wake up in the middle of the night, start walking around, start doing whatever nonsense he would do, talk, crazy talk. Um, and obviously, Joe's in the same room. Joe's trying to sleep. He's got class tomorrow, so he would wake Joe up. Um, and Joe and Matt would often argue while Matt was asleep. And most of the arguments would revolve around whether Matt was asleep or not. Um, so Matt would wake up. He'd start pulling the clothes out of his drawer or whatever. Joe would wake up. Joe would say, dude, you're, you're sleepwalking. Get back in your bed. To which Matt would reply, no, I'm awake. Like, I'm not sleepwalking. Um, And obviously, this conversation wouldn't go far. Um, It would just end in frustration. Um, And Matt would eventually, like, get upset with Joe, and Joe would be upset with him. Matt would jump back into his bed and go back to sleep, or I guess continue sleeping is a better way to put it. And the next morning, Matt would always be walking around, like, kind of in a bad mood. He'd be like, oh, man, I'm like, I'm so mad at Joe for some reason. I don't know why. Like, they're all like, dude, I know why. You argued with him for like an hour last night. Of course you're mad at him. So I say all this to say that even for the most active of sleepwalkers, even people who can have a whole conversation in their sleep, they're in a condition of unawareness. They have no idea what's going on. And although sleep in our physical life is necessary. The command here isn't like, you need to never sleep again until Jesus comes. Like, I think the Lord would have designed our bodies in a different way if that's what he desired us to do. We need sleep. So this isn't a physical command, but rather in our spiritual life, we are told, stay awake, stay on guard. If the Lord will come like a thief in the night, The person who is asleep will not only be surprised by the thief coming, they will not do much good in being prepared for that thief. This leads us into the other metaphor that Paul kind of closely ties in here in these same verses, being sober versus being drunk. I think what this tells us is it's not enough to just be awake. It's not enough to just show up. We must also remain sober and prepared for the return of Christ. So we know that Christ is returning. Um, That's a pretty blatant fact in this passage. We know that the day of the Lord will come, as Paul says. The question becomes, how do we prepare? Paul gets into this in verse 8. He says this, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Evan last week brought up a few different views of the millennium. And you might have seen that and considered that. Um, You might have already been very firm in in your view. You might have thought about it more this week. You might still have no idea what you believe about the timing of the coming of Christ and the timing of the millennium. And in each of these views, the kind of popular books, popular sermons will tell you to prepare in different ways. So tell you, you need to 
stockpile food or you need to not do that or you need to, you know, um, vote for the right people because the world's getting better until Christ returns. All of these views kind of have their different, I would say, standard ways that different teachers will tell you to prepare. But I think in our passage today, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, whatever you, whatever you might call yourself in terms of the millennium and eschatology, whatever your view, this command remains the same. Since we all ought to belong to the day, Paul tells us, put on these three things. Put on faith, put on love, put on hope. And in showing us how to prepare for these last days, Paul points us here to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 69, we see this same imagery of armor. But instead of believers putting on this armor in Isaiah 59 to be prepared for the last days, we see the Lord putting it on as he seeks out justice. So we're gonna jump back to Isaiah chapter 59. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and read from verses one through 15. It's a bit of a longer passage, um, but what we're seeing here is really the bad part of the story. We see Israel in rebellion Against the Lord. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, starting Isaiah 59, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web, he who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. 
truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This passage starts out very, very bleak. If you kind of go back to what I started today's sermon with, this thought of, man, what's going on in the world? What does all this mean? What is happening? That's, that's where this passage brings us. He says things like, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. The prophet Isaiah here was taking note of the condition of God's people. And in the same way, our sin today serves to separate us from God. If there is truly a God who is perfectly holy, perfectly just, and he created us in his image, then our sin separates us from him. He cannot dwell in the presence of sin. He can't tolerate it. He can't tolerate injustice. And what's happening in verse nine is is interesting. The prophet himself, he's including himself in this. He says, therefore, justice is far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied before you turning back from following our God. He's not pointing the finger. He's saying, I I am separated too by my sin. This is once again a bleak situation. So what does the Lord do with it? He's looking out at injustice, at a people who've transgressed him, and what does he do with it? What does he do with his people? Maybe a better question for you this morning What does he do with us? What does he do with you? If you find yourself separated from God this morning, stuck in sin, what does he do with you? Let's read on at the second half of verse 15. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man And wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So the Lord looks out. He he sees this going on and he is displeased. This is almost um, a, a contrast with the creation account in Genesis where the Lord makes all this creation. and He looks back and says, this is very good. And now his creation is rebelling against him, acting against the law that he created, and the Lord is displeased. But notice, he doesn't just wipe it all out. Of course, he would be justified to do so. Of course, he would be justified to look at anyone in this room and say, you've rebelled against me, you've broken my law, and I can't stand for that. I can't stand for injustice. And he could take that and wipe us out in an instant. But as the prophet says in verse one, the Lord's hand is not shortened. His arm is not so short that he cannot save. He saw that there was no man to intercede, that nobody could fix this. There wasn't a single person on earth who could step in the way and save these people. So his own arm brought salvation. The Lord acted to show mercy and save his people despite their rebellion. And how does he do this? Let's read on in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment, so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So the Lord will have his justice, but in verse 20, we see this man who was referenced in verse 16. That man who the Lord looked out and said, man, there's, there's no one who can intercede. We see in verse 20, this redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is a direct reference to the one who would ultimately come to satisfy the justice of God. This Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he died upon a cross in order to save all who will trust in him. And at the end of this chapter, the Lord makes a covenant. Let's look at verse 21. It says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So the Lord doesn't just promise to send a redeemer. He doesn't just fulfill that promise in the coming of Christ and the incarnation, which we'll look forward to in the next few weeks here. But he also promises to put his spirit within his people. He promises that those he saves, he will keep and dwell with them forever. So if we look back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians, in the same way that the Lord clothes himself in this armor as he extends his arm to save his people, so also we clothe ourselves with faith, with love, and the hope of salvation as we await our Savior's return. And verses 9 and 10 give us a foundation for this hope. Paul says this, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Thankfully, we look back to Isaiah 59, we are not the ones who are destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the hope that God has not destined us for wrath, that when Christ returns, we will not face punishment. Just as God promised to save his people in Isaiah 59, so those who trust in him will gain salvation. And he adds this assurance that whether we're, whether we're dead or alive at the time that he comes, we will live forever in eternity with him. This was Paul's assurance to the Thessalonians at the time, and this is his assurance to us today. And finally, we come to the end of this passage with an exhortation. He ends it like this. He says, therefore, in light of all of this, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And as we conclude today, I want to leave us with a practical way that we can encourage one another, both in faith 
and in hope. If you're here and you're, you're a believer, your faith is in Christ, you have the hope of salvation. We looked at this truth this morning, but despite this great hope, I think you also know that we're very, very prone to forget. So we are to encourage one another in the gospel, to remind one another of the great work that Christ has done on our behalf. I'm sure there's many of you in this room who you have a desk job or uh, maybe you drive for a living and probably on your desk or clipped to your dashboard somewhere um, is a picture of your family, of loved ones, siblings, children, whatever it may be. Um, we, we keep these things as a reminder. Now, no one puts a picture of their family on their desk because they forget that they have a family. Um, you don't typically look over at that and be like, oh yeah, I, for- I forgot about those people. That's, that's not why we keep it there. This is such an obvious, big truth in our lives. But we keep that picture there. We keep it clipped to the dashboard or in our wallet or wherever it may be as a reminder. Because we know that throughout the day, so much can happen at work in other areas of our life that can pull us away from the things that really matter. And seeing a photo like that, seeing a picture of your family grounds us back to things that are much more important than whatever happened that day at work. And it's in the same way that we remind each other of the gospel. It's an obvious truth. It seems very obvious. It seems very basic. We talk about it every week. We read about it in our own personal time throughout the week. But we remind ourselves of this and we point one another to the hope that we have in salvation because we're often so prone to forget about it. When we grow weary, when we are neck deep in discouragement, we encourage one another. And one of the ways we do this as a church is by singing together. In our corporate worship, we are not just singing words to the Lord. Certainly that's part of what we're doing. We're praising him, we're magnifying him, but we are speaking and singing words both to the Lord and to one another. One of the reasons I take um, leading worship here at Ogletown and song selection so seriously is because we're literally putting words in each other's mouths. We're putting them on the screen and we're asking you, hey, say these words out loud. Speak them to the Lord and speak them to one another. It's one thing for you to kind of sit and hear someone preach on a Sunday morning. That's great. You could, you could probably tune me out pretty easily. I'm sure some of you have. Um, but when those words are up on the screen and we're saying, hey, see those words, say those out loud, say those to each other, sing those. There's a lot of power in that. And James 3 reminds us of the power of our words. He says this, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not 
to be so. So we're going to sing um, to each other and to the Lord in a minute about the hope that we have in Christ. The song we'll sing has lines like this. It says, now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon that he has offered and great the welcome that I receive. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us, he rose that we would be free indeed. Words like this are powerful reminders of the gospel and the great work that Christ has done on our behalf. And in all honesty, this is like, this is the easy encouragement. Once again, we're putting the words on the screen. They're right there. We're teeing this one up for you. Encourage one another with these words. But the hard encouragement happens when the music stops, when the final prayer is said, and you turn to someone next to you and you began to talk. This is where the warning that I just read in James 3 settles in. That same tongue you used two minutes ago to sing these beautiful words to the Lord and to encourage one another, that could be the same tongue you use to tear down your brother or sister who was made in the image of God. We ought to be a people who encourage one another, both in our corporate worship and in our individual lives. So we're gonna take some time, once again, to sing together, but let's also take time to encourage one another before you leave. And in all this, we echo the words of Hebrews chapter 10, which says this. It says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. Christ is coming, and as the day draws near, we ought to be encouraging one another in the hope that we have. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I'm grateful for this body of believers. God, I'm grateful for the encouragement that, that many in this room have been to me and my family. And Lord, I pray that this, this truth, the reality of the gospel, that Christ has shown us awesome grace, and I pray that that truth would be, would be real to us, Lord, and I pray that as our brothers and sisters face the hardships of life, as they struggle, Lord, and even as they face the the encouraging parts of life, that we would be reminding one another of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that the gospel would never grow stale, that it would never seem like old news, that it would never be the, the kind of base of our belief and we we build these other awesome things off of it but it would be the core of what we believe that we would come back to it daily that we would remind one another of it daily and Lord I pray that as we sing together that we would be reminded of these words that they wouldn't be just empty words that we throw up 
Lord Amos says that you, you despise those who come just to worship in some pious way and throw up words. You, 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 don't, just, you don't just slightly disagree with it. You despise it. You hate when we only worship for show. But Lord, I pray that as we sing these words, as we, as we hear those next to us singing these words, we would be encouraged in the great work that you've done on our behalf. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.